confront the self-righteous. Now, we've seen in, in their discussion, there's much confusion because they don't understand the ways of the Lord and Jesus obviously is speaking truth. They're not of the truth and so much confusion. There's always much confusion when you don't understand. Now, in just way of an illustration to get started in our study, I printed out a description of Einstein's theory of relativity. Why would I do that? Well, just listen. It says, the theory relatively usually encompasses two theories by Albert Einstein, special relativity and general relativity. Concepts introduced by the theories of relativity include space-time as a unified entity of space and time, relativity of simultaneity, kinetic and gravitational time dilation, and length contraction. Did you get that? I always thought, you know, his theory relatively just was whittled down to E equals MC squared. But even if you whittle it down to E equals MC squared, I don't really fully understand that as well. I don't understand how you apply that and why he could stick these three letters and one number together and come up with this amazing concept. But those who are smarter, those who understand, probably could explain it to you. My father, when he didn't want me to know what he was saying with his brothers, with my uncles, he would speak in Italian. I don't understand Italian. I remember a few years ago, Terry was speaking to her mother in German. They both speak fluent German. And they were going on German, da-da-da-da-da. And then I heard Terry say, and and Mike. (laughs) And they're going, I didn't understand what they were saying, but I kind of got a clue that I was the butt of some kind of joke or something. My friends, when they speak Spanish to their families, I don't understand. I had a friend, John Labordi, his wife was Cuban, and they were all over at his house one day, and they're speaking, and they're just all rattling on, and John speaks Spanish, but I could tell he was a little perplexed. I go, well, you understand what they're saying, don't you speak Spanish? They, the Cubans speak Spanish, don't they? He goes, yeah, but those people speak so fast, I don't understand a word that they're saying. There are certain figures of speech that are unique to households. My kids were over at somebody's house and they wanted to watch TV and they asked them where the Schmitzer was. And, and the, the lady there says, uh, pardon me? And they said, the Schmitzer. And he goes, I'm sorry, I don't know what a Schmitzer is. It's the things that you use to turn the channel on the TV. My wife has always called it a Schmitzer. I, that's not really German. I think it's just a figure of speech. But lo and behold, in our household, the TV tuner is a Schmitzer. So if you're ever over and we ask you to pass the Schmitzer, you know what it is. Certain things that, well, you just wouldn't understand. Figures of speech that are common and understood by the family, but a stranger who's not a member of the family just isn't going to get these things. And that was Jesus' point last week. Is he speaking to, now again, keep in mind, he's speaking to these people who are religious, they, they look really holy. Matter of fact, they're dressed in that white linen. And, and again, they, just, they know the word forward and backward. But Jesus is telling them, if you're self-righteous, you're, you're not of me, and you have never been of the Father. See, his point last week, when Abraham heard the words of the Father, because they would always go back to their relationship with Father Abraham. Father Abraham, when he came into the promised land, he was looked at at the advent of the Hebrews. He was the beginning of the Hebrew race. And it says, when Abraham heard the words of the father, he understood without completely understanding, there had to be a leap of faith, but he received the words of the father. But these self-righteous, through their self-righteousness, they're blinded by that. 
And really, what is self-righteousness? In actuality, it's just a manifestation of the flesh in somebody's life. It's, a, it's an attempt through the flesh of man to be looked at as being holy. So the Jews who stand before Jesus, they don't understand Jesus' Jesus's point here, is because although they say they're of Abraham, in actuality, Jesus is telling them, you're of a different family. That which they do understand is of that family. If you look at verse 47, it's where we left off last week. Jesus said, he who is of God, hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. I was thinking of myself, all of the years that I heard, but I, I didn't really hear. I, I heard people share the gospel. I read the Bible a little bit, but I never really, I never really heard. It's not until I humbled myself and had a desire to hear that the Holy Spirit illuminated the Word of God, and, and then I was able to understand, and it's then that I came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God has always desired to lead His family by His Word. It's why we hold the Word of God dear. It's how we know God, and it's how we know the will of God, and it's how we know the ways of God. The devil, the devil has always desired to lead his family by defiling God's word. In verse 44, Jesus made a very serious accusation against the self-righteous of his day. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. We're looking at Isaiah on Sunday nights, and currently we're looking at the time when they're in Babylonian captivity. We know that they were brought into Babylonian captivity because they went contrary to God's word. They started worshiping false idols. Finally, they were released from Babylonian captivity, but went very quickly, not to idolatry, but just, well, they just became lackadaisical with the word of God. One of the accusations that the Lord brought against the priest in Malachi, chapter 2, verse 17, it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Wearied the Lord with your words. Words of self-righteousness. And it says, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights them. Or where is the God of justice? Well, it would be the same thing that's going on today. We've taken the word of God out of our culture, out of our society, and, and what do we have? Well, we've got the mess that we have today. It was a blessing on, um, on Monday. We had our float. I don't know if you got to see it. Um, we put a float together for the City of Ontario parade, and as always, since I'm the pastor, I ride in the front seat of the truck. And uh, it's, just, it's just a really neat thing. You know, we had the float, we had the VBS people on the back and walking along the side. And, and it's neat just because you kind of pull down the side there, and then you pull onto the parade, and you're going down, and people are clapping, and people are excited, and people are waving, and it's just a, a really cool thing. I mean, it's just a minor way, but we have to be of that mindset as we have opportunity to get the word out, to get the word of God out into the community. Because again, I've said it so many times, they want to know what the Bible says. They may say that they don't want to know, because what does it do? We know it, it convicts them. And so they, they want that conviction to go away. But when the hard times come, when the difficult day is upon them, they want to know 
what the Word of God says. They won't call it the Word of God, but they would want to know what the Bible says. So when I have an opportunity at a funeral, I'll go up there and I'll tell them, first of all, I'll tell them how long I'm going to speak. I'm going to just come up here and speak for about 10 or 15 minutes because when they see a pastor go up there, they're ready for a good hour speech. And so I tell them, and I try to stay to 10 or 15 minutes. And then I'll tell them either I knew the person or I didn't know the person. I think they deserve to know what my relationship is and why I am there. And then I'm going to tell them that I am here to tell you today what the Word of God says concerning life and concerning death. Because what are they doing? Well, when you have that casket up there, everybody's thinking of the day that they are going to be in that casket. They're faced with their own mortality. And when they're faced with mortality, we have an opportunity. And we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. In season and out of season. A funeral is an in-season time. I realized very... The first funeral that I did was probably in 1995, and it was for a two-year-old that got run over by a car. It was very tragic, but I'll never forget. I was nervous. I was nervous the first funeral, and then, you know, this, all, all funerals are, are important. Don't get me wrong, but to do one for a two-year-old child, little girl, two-year-old child, and I hadn't met the parents beforehand, and, and so I'm sitting in the back of the, the chapel there, and they were late for whatever reason, and I'm thinking, what do I tell these parents? What do you tell the parents of this little two-year-old that got run over by a car. And I just kept coming up empty. And, and so I'm nervous, and I'm nervous about talking to the parents. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And, all. and then finally somebody says, well, they're here. And it's like, oh, I just don't know what to say. And they come in, and they look at me, and they, they shook my hand, and they thanked me for coming out. And they said, we just want the gospel preached. We just want God, all things work together for the good, and we want to see this bad thing, but we want to see the good that's able to be worked out of it. And there's an opportunity for the word to go out whenever it is. And so I've got to ask you, are you ready for the in-season? But more importantly, all of us, are, are we ready for the out-of-season opportunity? The opportunity when we have to share the word with the world that wants to know what the Bible says. Because we're the ones who are supposed to know what the Bible says. Well, the problem with the Pharisees... And again, in the Gospel of John, 90% of the time when you see the word Jews, it's not talking to Jews ethnically, it's talking to the religious leaders. Well, Jesus is confronting the Jews. If you look at verse 48, then the Jews answered and said, these are these self-righteous religious leaders. And so he's confronting them because they have perverted the word of God to their own benefit. So in verse 47, Jesus has just told the religious ones that they are not of God. Their belief origin, he's saying, is from elsewhere. And then verse 48, then the Jews answered their response to verse 47 and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now back in that day, to understand what is being said here, because again, there, this is an argument back and forth with these self-righteous people. Back then, a Samaritan would be kind of a it would be a put-down. It wasn't just used to define those people who were in mid-Israel, these people who had been brought into Assyrian captivity and then came back into the land and could not prove who they are and were looked at as being unclean. It was also used as a term to put people down. And so Samaritan, and what they're calling him, when they call him a Samaritan, is someone of false beliefs in spiritual things. The woman of the well spoke how they worship God, and Jesus said how he is to be worshipped. 
And she, but when she just she didn't realize he was Messiah, she says, you Jews worship him in Jerusalem, we worship him here. And so those Jews look down their nose at everybody, but especially the Samaritan. And when they say that he has a demon, they're basically saying that he's possessed or he is crazy. And so we can look at some of the cults out there, and basically how we look at them is how they are looking at Jesus Christ. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Jesus' response is, you're the ones who are off base here. And and again, they they knew the word, and so there's responsibility here. And and I'm responsible before God because I got a Bible. And not only do I have a Bible, I probably got about four Bibles in my office. I have a Bible that's next to me on my nightstand at home. I have a phone that has a Bible on it. I have an iPad that has a Bible on it. I have two computers that have Bibles on it. And if I run out of Bibles, then I can steal one of my wife's 100 Bibles. We all have multiple Bibles, and we're, 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 we're accountable before God. And again, the reason I say it like that is, is because the self-righteous, they knew the word of God backward and forward. But the problem with them is they diluted it by their traditions. And Jesus even confronted them in the book of Matthew that saying that they had rendered the word of God of no effect by their traditions. Anything added to it is going to detract from it. And so Jesus again is saying that they're the ones who are off base. He says, you dishonor me for giving honor to the Father. And in doing so, you dishonor the Father. And so Jesus, we've looked at this before. I looked at it the other morning with the men. But it was necessary for Christ to have that connection with the Father. Now, a lot of things that occurred in Christ's ministry were for us to see the parallel with. So when Christ was encouraged in his ministry, that we would see, well, we have the necessity to be encouraged in our ministry. When we see the Holy Spirit coming upon him, we have the necessity of having the Holy Spirit come upon us. Well, when Jesus was baptized, and I, I really, I, I got baptized late in my spiritual life, relatively late, about two years into my salvation, I believe it was. And I wish I would have gotten baptized, at least at the time, I wish I would have gotten baptized sooner. But now I kind of see the value in what God was doing in my life. Not that he told me not to get baptized until then. But when I did, I really understood the commitment that I was making. I understood really the statement that was going on there. Because I I, I really looked at it as, well, there was the date of my salvation that I came into the kingdom of heaven. But there was that date of my baptism that I was truly dying to myself for the benefit of what God had called me to. Not even so much that I looked at it as the start of my ministry, but maybe the start of a deeper commitment to the ministry to which God has called me to. Now, I didn't know what God had exactly called me to at that time. I wasn't a pastor at the time, for sure. But again, there are those times when we have those little monuments in our lives that God uses those things, that we can refer back to those things when the things of the present day or the things of the present time get hard. So again, Jesus is speaking of this relationship that he has with the Father. Well, at the beginning of his ministry, it was necessary for that to be cemented. And if you look at, you don't have to turn there, but I'll look at Matthew chapter 3, 
verse 17, when Christ was being baptized, most of you know the story, he came up out of the water and it says, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And it's easy, that's the last verse of, of chapter 3, and it's easy to leave that behind and go into chapter 4 and the temptations. My wife and I, when we were in Israel, we came from the north down to the south just before we came into Jerusalem. And when we came down, we paralleled the Jordan River. And when we got level, we're on the same latitude, I guess you could say, where Jerusalem was. We were still 30 miles out. But we were at the Jordan River, and we were at the place that it was believed that Jesus was baptized, which would make sense. Because if you just walk from Jerusalem straight to the Jordan River, that's where you would come to. And so we went out there and we saw, it wasn't much to see, but we saw what there was to see. We got in the bus and then we headed straight over into Jerusalem. No longer were we heading from north to south, now we were heading west. And so as you're going into Jerusalem, or heading towards Jerusalem, what do you see? Wilderness. And when it says wilderness, it's basically flat out desert, just basically sand and rocks. And that's pretty much it. And so the father told Jesus, suddenly this voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, then from there, Jesus went out into the wilderness, which again makes sense because you see that there. And then that's where the devil met him and tempted him. But Jesus had that landmark, if you will, that this is my beloved son. And again, we need to have that same understanding and knowledge that we are the beloved children through faith in Jesus Christ of our Father in heaven. Why is that important to understand, to know, to embrace, to truly believe? Because sooner or later, just as Jesus did, you're going to get tempted as well. So that knowledge was necessary entering into his temptation. Then Jesus was led up into the spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, now look at the place where the tempter tempts him, where Satan tempts the Lord. If you are the son of God. See, what is he doing? He's bringing question here. Don't look at it as question to this voice that came down out of heaven. Look at it, he's questioning the word of God. He's questioning the words of God designed to cause the one he's attempting to tempt to stumble. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And the idea here is, if you're the son of God, would the father really allow you to starve to death out here? Now, hasn't the devil kind of tempted you like that? Tempted you to take an easy way out of a situation? You know what, if God was really God, if he was really your father, would he allow you to go through this trial that you're going through? And you can sit there and you could probably think, you know what, that's true. And he can so pervert the words of God and the reality of who you are in the sight of God that it rips off your relationship with the Lord. And instead of delivering you from the trial, really what he does is he brings you deeper into the trial. Verse 5, then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. If you're really the Son of God, would he re and he's really God, would he allow anything bad to happen to you? And again, you could be of the mindset, well, yeah, that's true, would he? And then when bad things happen, then we become spiritually destroyed. 
Well, that's the way that the devil works, and he's done a pretty good job back in John chapter 8 with the self-righteous. They, the devil has allowed them to believe that they're right with God based upon the abilities that they have, the abilities that they have as far as what they believe they're doing to keep the word of God. Now, again, they have an improper perspective of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the word of God was given so that they would know that they're sinners, so that when Messiah came, they would come to Messiah. But instead, it's been perverted to such a degree through their traditions and the devil that they now think that they're right with God based upon the Old Testament. And so, that being the case, the devil, the devil's been a liar from the beginning. He's a liar then, and he'll continue to lie to you today. Stay rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Because it's the Word of God that is truth. It's the Word of God that is going to get you through the difficult day. And even when doubt enters in, am I really a child of God? It's the promises of God through the Word of God that is going to keep you going in the proper direction. These people, they were deceived. And so as the Son does the Father's work, he who dishonors the message dishonors the Son. He who dishonors the Son dishonors the Father and brings repercussions of that message upon themselves. And so what they've done again, they've warped the Word of God, and because they've warped the Word of God, as truth is standing right before them, they can't see it. Verse 50, And I do not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks and judges. Now, Jesus is speaking of his own glory here. He's speaking about his time here on earth. What did Jesus come? What are we told in Philippians chapter 2? We're told that he came as a slave. He didn't come to be glorified as far as his time here on earth. Where was Christ glorified? Christ was glorified in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. But as far as this time now, it was not time for him to be glorified. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. He's basically saying this is up to the Father. Jesus, we're not going to turn there, but in John chapter 17, Jesus will speak of the Father glorifying him and the Father glorifying his people. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. And so Jesus is not seeking worldly glory. Well, what's their problem? They are. They're seeking worldly glory, the self-righteous. Because self-righteousness always says, come and look at me. Come and look at who I am. I pointed it out before that if right standing with God was based upon what we're able to do, think of that damage that it would cause. See, I, I can say that we're all one in Christ. God sees every single person here the same. I'm no more favored than you are. God loves me the same as he loves you. Why? Because it's all based upon grace. It's all based upon the grace of God. We've all received the grace of God. But if it's righteousness, self-righteousness, the righteousness that comes from me and not the righteousness that's bestowed upon me by Christ, then I might be able to do righteousness better than you can do. And what's the standard for righteousness anyway? I mean, if man's righteousness, self-righteousness, can cause him to be right before a holy God, then what's the standard? Christ is no longer the standard because this is that which man is able to produce. So we'll say Bill Kovac is the standard for self-righteousness. He'll be the poster. We're going to have a picture of Bill up here next week. <laughs> Wait, Robin said what? No, he's not. 
<laughs> whoever it will be. But then we start looking at that particular person as the example. And the thing that I see is that I'll never be able to, I'll never be able to measure up to Bill, or at least the image that Bill projects, because we're always going to put ourselves in the best light. And so what is that in actuality going to do? It's going to destroy the faith of people. Because here I try to be self-righteous and I can never live up to this person who's the standard, and sooner or later you become defeated and you quit. Well, that's what was going on there with the, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious community of Jesus' day. Everybody, they had everybody hoodwinked. It's a biblical, it's a Greek term. They had everybody fooled to believe that they were self-righteous, and you would look at them and think, how could I ever measure up to that? And again, when you come to the realization that you can't measure up, and then you fall, and then you fail. And so... Psalm 50, verse 23 says, Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. I want the salvation of God. I want the word of God to display me as a sinner so that I know I'm a sinner so that I can repeat of, repent, not repeat, repent of my sins and find the grace of God. Verse 51, Most surely I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, again, with all this discussion and everything here, you've got verse 51 in my Bible. It's only two lines. It seems fairly minor, but it's the most profound verses in this section. Verse 51, Most surely I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Most surely, Jesus is saying, now pay attention to this. So in the midst of their discussion, Jesus is wanting their attention. This is why the Father has sent the Son, because if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Great promises in which we need to understand three things. First thing, this promise is conditional. It's based upon anyone who. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're Gentile. Anyone who keeps Jesus' word. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh. In John chapter 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the idea here is this is God's means of communicating with mankind. God has always been so beyond man, but we're told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is the image, the exact representation of the invisible God. Now man can connect with God. He can understand God. He can perceive God. And so the word of God, the word is the ultimate in communication. To keep Jesus' word is to hear it, is to receive it, and to do it. And keep, that word keep, is a continual process. So first of all, it's to hear it. Well, there's so much I hear. There's probably things that you hear that you're not even hearing right now. I'm hearing the air conditioner as it's on there. You probably haven't been thinking much about the air conditioner because it's pleasant in here and you've gotten used to the sound. So I hear it, but I'm not really hearing So there, there's a lot of sounds that enter into my ears and bounce off my eardrums. The gospel for many years just entered in and bounced off my eardrums. But what is required to keep the Lord's word is to spiritually hear the word of God. It's for that sound to be absorbed within my heart. And again, I, 
as I said, there was many times that I heard the words of God, but they hit the eardrums and basically bounced out of the head. But there's that one time that I heard the word of God. I can still remember that night. I don't remember all the details, but I do remember that Wednesday night. It was as if I was hearing it for the first time. Well, they weren't just bouncing off eardrums, but they were penetrating deep down in to the inner person. And again, God's word, it's living and it's powerful. And so to keep Jesus' word also, you have to receive it. To believe it, to receive it is to believe it with the expectation of receiving what it has to offer. And so when I finally heard the word of God, it wasn't, wow, that was nice. It wasn't like just a, a pretty song, but it was to receive it. The expectation of receiving this, the, the, this power, the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation, to receive of that for the purpose of an inner change. Now, I couldn't have explained it in that detail, but as I was hearing it, I understood that these, and again, I wouldn't have used this verbiage, but I understood that these were the, the words of life. Now, I can look back on that and have that validated because, yeah, I can look back so long ago, as I said, I remember that night, I, it was July 20-something, I don't remember the date exactly, but I can remember that night and I know that something profound was happening to me at that time. I look back and I see that something profound happened to me at that time. Again, that was that time that the word of God, I I heard it, but then I received it with the expectation of my life being changed. And that was kind of the scary part for me because, again, you have to admit that you were wrong with everything else. You knew that you were headed in another direction, a new direction. And again, I'm not going to be all in on something unless, unless I truly am able to embrace the totality of it. And so I was headed to into uncharted territories, but that was okay because you have that peace. You have that peace in the midst of, uh, of God's word being spoken and God's word being received. And so I have to hear it, I have to receive it, and then I've got to do it. And maybe that was the scary part, understanding the change that it was going to bring and realizing that that change had to be real within my life. So the ultimate proof in a life of hearing and receiving is doing. And so what we've got to once again consider is, what do you really think of the Bible? I mean, think about that. What do you really think of the Bible? If I asked you what the Bible was, your knee-jerk reaction probably would be, if you've been around here for very long, it's the Word of God. Well, even more than that, it's the Word of God to you, to you as, as, as an individual. And what does the Word of God have to say to you? And again, we should be able to take that survey. What is the word of God? There's a child over there with the curtains. He's waving. (laughs) What does the word of God say to you as a born-again believer? And each one of us should be able to give, really, answers that are the same, but in actuality, or or maybe I shouldn't say different, but unique to ourselves. Because if the word of God is personal, then each and every one of us is going to hear for our lives and for the situations and circumstances that we deal with daily. Matter of fact, those who didn't do the word of God, Jesus had very harsh words for. Luke chapter 6, verse 46, it's as if he's perplexed here. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Well, Later on, you say that they'll be cast into outer darkness. And so that tells me that since they weren't doing the word of God, that they weren't saved by the word of God. 
it was all something that was superficial. I mean, can you imagine standing before the Lord and saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why did you make the big thing about carrying the Bible around or going to church every single Sunday or doing this or, or doing that, but you didn't do the things that I say? You didn't do the elementary things of belief. You, you didn't conduct your life in righteousness and holiness to the best of your ability. You didn't seek me out. You never sat and prayed. You never, and again, we can fill in so many blanks as the word of God directs us to do. And we have to have that understanding as God's word is living and powerful. It's going to have a profound change in our lives. And again, it's not for the person next to you to look and make sure you're measuring up. It's that you would look into this mirror, the mirror of the word of God, and you would know that you're measuring up to the salvation that God has offered to you, that you would know that you've received it and that you would know that you have embraced it. Keeping the word proves that I have heard it with understanding, received it into my heart, there's been a change made, and integrated it into my life. Secondly, we need to understand the result of the promise. The person who keeps Jesus' word here, the Lord says, he will never see death. Now we know this is not physically, but spiritually. The person who obeys the Son will not be eternally separated from the Father. Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He asked her, do you believe in it? And then thirdly, there's an assurance here. Again, verse 51, Most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. What's the assurance? Assurance is, it's the word of God. And again, just this one little verse. And as you read the word of God, you'll come across just one little verse. Maybe this is just me, but this verse just really jumped out and think, man, there's the whole gospel that is, is written in, that, in those two lines. But once again, not being of the family of God, they don't understand what is being said. Verse 51, Most surely I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Well, they understood that he claimed that he was speaking the words of God, and they would say, Well, that Abraham kept him, the prophets kept him, and, and they're dead even today. Verse 53, Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. And so Jesus is in essence saying, since I have based my ministry and my relationship upon truth, I must always keep the truth. In verse 56, he says, your father Abraham, and this is really his answer, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so he's speaking past tense in Abraham's day, back to Abraham's day, and from Abraham's day into the future, future tense. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Well, what is the context here? The context is resurrection. He who believes in me shall not die. 
Verse 51, most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, then he shall never see death. And they're saying, well, this is not true because Abraham died. But Jesus is saying, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day when he saw it and was glad. And so he's speaking of Abraham as he had a glimpse of the reality of resurrection. Where do we see that picture? You see that picture. We're not going to turn there, but we're going to look at the commentary on it. In Genesis chapter 22, when he was told to take his son, his only son, his son who he loves, Isaac, and to sacrifice him, what was the mindset of Abraham as he's going up on that hill to sacrifice? I mean, he knew what he was going to do. He's offering his son as a sacrifice. He knew he was going to kill his son. It's what God called him to do. But why would he, you know, it even said that when God gave him the order, the next day he got up early to go. He didn't procrastinate whatsoever. Well, we're told in Hebrews exactly what he was thinking. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And so Abraham believed. He believed by faith. That's why he's in Hebrews chapter 11. And again, we've got to consider, do we believe? Because at death, that's really where the the rubber meets the road. We, uh, we experience this daily. We, we, we pray for people. And, and, and nonetheless, daily, people are dying. We look across the landscape of this nation. There's been some tragic events and some shootings the last couple of days. There was one young man who never did anything illegal and all and just driving in the car and, and he was killed by an unexpected source. There was the... Uh, was it 256 people that died in Baghdad from the car bombs? And it's just death is just raining across this world. And you see how, how, how desperate the human situation is apart from God. But there was Abraham. Abraham, he staked his whole relationship upon God based upon God's word. God said, go, and he went. God said, go sacrifice your son, your only son, the son who you love, Isaac. And he went and did that. So this was a man who was faithful to God's word. And as he was faithful to God's word, this was a man who was rewarded. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He was glad. Jesus' day, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord in this particular context is the resurrection. And God had given him a picture somehow of the resurrection. I would imagine it was through his son who was as good as dead, but then God, through an angel, stopped him and allowed him to live. But they're telling, he, he's confronting these people that are, are dependent upon this man. You now have the living God before you. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. It's not according to their self-righteousness. Neither will their future life be according to that as well. Sin is rain, so all are going to die, but all who cast their cares upon Christ will have eternal life. Verse 57, Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most surely, now this is one of the most profound statements that he's ever spoken. Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. 
Now, when he said, I am there, it's obvious he's referring to himself as deity. There are people who will argue against that and all, but obviously, I don't know, in my Bible, the translators capitalized I am, so they believe that. But also, those standing before Christ believed it because the penalty for blasphemy, which if he wasn't deity, would be blasphemy, is stoning. And what did they do in verse 59? Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and going through the midst of them, so passed by. So, even before Abraham was born, Jesus is saying, I have always been the God who is. A couple last points here before we pray. First, Jesus is God, and if you want to take up stones, if you want to kill him off in your life, he's going to allow you to do that. He's a gentleman. He will do with you as he did with the Jews. It says in verse 59, he hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, you can't kill him, but you can effectively kill him off out of your life. In verse 1, we see that Jesus, look at the first couple of verses of chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. What did he do? He passed the self-righteous, and he went to the one who was ultimately going to be the one who received him. And it's that one, who, as you will see as we go to the end of chapter 9, who received eternal life. The others unless they changed, unless they somewhere along the lines repented, they, they were judged for their sins. And so again, self-righteousness, the wages of sin is death. Self-righteousness, self-righteousness is me trying to place myself on this, besides the Lord. But I, what I need to do is I need to come before the feet of the Lord. We need to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. As we do that, he lifts us up. Father, once again, we just thank you for your word in this place tonight. We just pray, Father, that as we have gotten into your word, I pray, Father, that you would continually strengthen our faith. Father, I pray for the attacks that come, especially in this day that we live, the attacks against truth. And I just pray, Father, that we would stand steadfast on that which we know to be truth. And so, Father, just fill us with your spirit and enable us in these things. That, Father, we would have proper perspective that we would have proper perspective of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, understanding that truly he's God, that we would have proper perspective of ourselves, that we saw fall so short of the glory of God, that we would understand and know that the wages of sin is death, but that we would know that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, Father, even as Abraham was used in as, as an example, that's the way it always was in the Bible, and that is the way it's always going to be for eternity. So, Lord, once again, we just thank you and praise you for this evening. We pray, Father, that you would just go before us, that you would watch over us as we drive home tonight, that you would use us, Father, throughout the remainder of this week, that you would gather us back together on Sunday, and that you would bless us for studying your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? Well, the parade is over, but Vacation Bible School is coming upon us. It's a... Is it a week from Monday already? It's a week from Monday. So a week from this Monday. We're having a workday Saturday here. I believe it starts at 9.30. We're putting together, um, they're cutting out fish things and decor for the Ocean Commotion VBS. Uh, We're going to be building backdrops and whatnot. So if you're able to come out, even for a little bit, it would be a blessing to have you come out and, and to join us.
Other than that, we're gathering together on Sunday morning. We're back in 2 Timothy. God bless you guys.